today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau kicking both former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould and former Cabinet Minister Jing Philpott out of the Liberal caucus last night. He made the announcement yesterday evening after spending the day consulting by phone with caucus members about whether they wanted the pair to remain in the Liberal fold. Let's hear from the PM. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, Philpott are no longer members of the Liberal caucus. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, Philpott are no longer members of the Liberal caucus. The trust that previously existed between these two individuals and our team has been broken. Whether it's taping conversations without consent or repeatedly expressing a lack of confidence in our government and in me personally as leader, it's become clear that Ms. Wilson-Raybould and Dr. Philpott can no longer remain part of our Liberal team. Earlier today, I met with caucus executive and leadership to hear the will of caucus. I met with Ms. Wilson-Raybould and Dr. Philpott to inform them of my decision. I just met with National Caucus and now I'm addressing media and Canadians. I'd like to explain why I've made this decision and speak to the important work ahead of us. This has been a difficult few weeks for our government and for our Liberal team. On the issue surrounding SNC-Lavalin, we've seen allegations made and different versions of events detailed. Amid the confusing and the competing narratives, Canadians, rightly, have had questions. And we've wrestled with those questions, too, because they touch on things like the role of government in protecting jobs and the integrity of our democratic institutions. We made a commitment to Canadians in 2015 to do things differently, to bring together a diverse group of people and to demonstrate that public service, the commitment to community, that a desire to work hard to build a better future can be done differently than it used to be done. And we've done that. We have approached politics differently. We have approached team building differently. And in learning to do new things and doing them differently, we encounter difficult moments because doing new things, doing different things is hard and we're not always going to be perfect. But that's what we've done. And we have throughout it stayed focused on our values and on Canadians. All right, so that is the latest twist in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, turmoil, affair, controversy, however you want to call it. Uh, So let's dig into this. What happens next? Melissa Lansman is the Vice President's Public Affairs at Hill and Knowlton Strategies and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Melissa, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, was this the right decision? Was this the only decision the PM could make? Look, I I think actually the PM really had no choice. I I think there's a lot of liberals asking themselves why it didn't happen sooner. But this is really not a good look for uh, for Justin Trudeau, because what happened yesterday was the prime minister really sent a clear message that if you tell the truth 
and you stand up for ethics and integrity, there is no room for you in the Liberal Party. And that's going to be a tough thing to explain to the electorate. On the flip side, though, if he keeps Philpott and Wilson-Raybould in caucus, does he look like a weak leader who can't address uh, a problem within his party? Look, I think that the prime minister could have put this to bed long ago. He should have come out, apologized, uh, and, and said that, you know, you know, what happened uh, happened, and we're going to go uh, forward. That didn't happen. So unfortunately, we're in, uh, for the liberals, they're in a situation where uh, it's, about, it's over 60 days uh, later, and they're still fighting this fire. And I don't think that it goes away. If you think kicking out uh, two uh, you know, senior um, former ministers out of, uh, out of caucus shuts this story down, I actually think it adds more fuel uh, to the fire. Why do you say that? Do you, do you think the the uh, Tories and the NDP are going to pounce on this with a new strategy of their own? Well, I certainly think that the opposition has uh, has pounced on it. Um, they they have uh, continuously been holding the the prime minister's uh, feet to the fire on this. The prime minister has been on on um, on his back leg the entire time. Jody Wilson-Raybould has dominated um, this story because she has a version of the truth that Canadians believe uh, certainly to be true. And and what happened is is the Liberals made a calculation that Canadians care more about how the truth came out rather than the truth itself. And I think that that's a bad bet to make. We're chatting with uh, Melissa Lansman, Vice President, Public Affairs at Hill and Knowlton Strategies here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Is there, because of the secret audio recording that Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, uh, recorded with uh, Michael Warnick, uh, the former uh, Privy Council uh, clerk, is there a political stain on her now? Well, I think there's a lot of Canadians that ask questions. You know, is that, uh, is that the way that uh, I want to know that government's doing its business? There's probably a lot of people that are uncomfortable with that. But let's ask the question, what made her do it? You know, how far, how far was she pushed? How much was she pressured to feel that she needed to protect herself um, with the tape? And if we're talking about the tape, we're actually talking about the wrong thing. Because at the center of all of this, still, there's still questions about whether the prime minister, the prime minister's office, members of his senior staff, pressured an attorney general to make uh, a political decision interfering in a criminal prosecution, and those questions haven't been answered. So if we're talking about the tape, we're talking about the wrong thing. Do you think releasing the audio tape from Ms. Wilson-Raybould's point of view was a last resort or a last kind of punch? Well, I think that uh, she felt that she had no choice. There was, uh, you know, the, the prime minister said it one way. There was a lot of competing narratives. Uh, but in all of those narratives, there's the truth, and the truth was on that tape. Uh, you know, I listened to that 17-minute uh, tape, and I certainly heard uh, that the, the clerk, um, on behalf of the prime minister, continued to pressure the attorney general to make a decision that she didn't want to make. And when she didn't make it, he alluded to consequences. And now we know those consequences are that she got fired. So at the end of the day, this all looks like, you know, when you don't act in the way that uh, the prime minister wants you to act, even if it's, you know, potentially uh, against your best advice, you're going to get fired. And that doesn't, uh, you know, that doesn't bode well for him going into the next election. Would you be surprised or, or, or do you think um, Canadians are expecting Wilson-Raybould and Philpott to cross the floor either with 
the conservatives or the NDP, or would they simply be best to remain as independents until Election Day if they do, uh, in fact, decide to, to run again? I think uh, that both of those um, women have a tremendous amount of respect, certainly from from their liberal colleagues and what they've done. Uh, you know, I think if you looked at their voting record, they're through and through um, liberals. They certainly disagreed on this one issue. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they can run anywhere in the country uh, and win today. And uh, I, I'm sure they're looking at their options. And I'm, I'm almost certain that this is not the end of this story. Do you think they can win as independents, though? I think I think they can win um, certainly uh, as independents in the ridings uh, if they choose to run in the in those ridings where uh, where they are both in Vancouver and uh, and Jane Philpot here in Ontario. But I would uh, you know if I was them I would certainly uh, think bigger at this point. Interesting. Uh, last question for you, and this is probably the most important one: is how does this play out with Canadians come election day in October? I'm not just talking about the two ridings that Philpot and Wilson Raybould will be running in, but as a whole, how big of a story is this still going to be? come election day i know the opposition parties are going to say hey remember this but will voters say yeah you know what that's a determining factor in electing a new government or this government again well i think there's a lot of people that uh, voted for for justin trudeau on the on the on the basis that he was going to do politics differently and what we saw is that he's very much doing politics the same so that's certainly a stain on a prime minister who's built his brand around uh, being the feminist prime minister, being one for indigenous uh, reconciliation, it's a it's a big brand problem for him. Does it last till uh, you know seven months until the election? It remains to be seen if that uh, you know if that pl- um, propels any other leader uh, into office. But he's going to have a, a tough time convincing Canadians, uh, you know, that he is the prime minister that you uh, that they elected in uh, 2015, and that there's a way forward for him. Look, they just released a, a budget that nobody's talking about, and uh, that's a really big problem for a governing pro- uh, party in an election year. Yeah, that's that's almost unheard of because usually they're full of juicy, uh, great things for Canadians, and it was really a whole hum budget. Yeah, I think if you ask, uh, you know, nine out of ten people would say, yeah, that that budget couldn't tell you one thing that was in it. Um, and you know, when you're when you're running to convince Canadians that uh, that you're the government that takes care of them, that takes care of the middle class, that uh, uh, that promotes, um, you know, feminist uh, and uh, in- indigenous reconciliation, and you're marred in this scandal, big problem. Very much so, Melissa. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Melissa Lansman, uh, Vice President, Public Affairs at Hill and Knowlton Strategies, uh, reflecting on uh, the latest twist in a series of twists and turns. This has been a roller coaster of a story for the uh, federal liberal government and the Trudeau liberals. Um, and it will continue. Obviously, this latest decision to oust Jody Wilson Raybould and Jane Philpot, two former members of cabinet. To oust them from caucus is, you know, it's not the end of the road. They have options. Yes, they can cross the floor, although I don't think either of them will. And you know that the opposition parties, the NDP, the PCs, heck, the Greens are going to jump on this as well come election time, are not going to let this fire die down. They're going to continue to make sure those embers are red hot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Public Works Committee has uh, voted to look at letting vehicles park in bike lanes along Bay Street. This would happen from Barton to Stewart during off-peak hours. 
I've scratched my head, and I'm sure our next guest has done so, and maybe a little bit more. Uh, Ryan McGrill is the editor of Raise the Hammer and joins us now on The Scott Thompson Show. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Not too bad. Thank you. Do you have any hair left after scratching uh, it uh, over this issue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, scratching and tearing. It's, it's so infuriating. You it's, know, it's, it's bizarre. We really are a one-step-forward, two-steps-back kind of a town when it comes to making our streets, our streets safer and more inclusive for everybody. I don't know who thought this would be a good idea to propose, and I don't understand how they could have decided as a committee. I mean, I think eight out of nine councillors voted in favour of this, that this was a good idea to, to pursue. The, the most charitable interpretation is that they're going to ask staff to look into it with the assumption the staff will come back and say, no, this is a terrible idea, it's going mm-hmm. to make the street more dangerous. That remains to be seen. Yeah, you know what, I, uh, I, I'm i always of the uh, opinion that looking at something is a good idea. Um, this one, I'm not quite sure how it would make sense. And, and just to give our listeners a bit of background, so again, this would be on Bay Street between Barton and Stewart, where there's bike lanes already uh, there, and you know they're used by cyclists going to and from work or doing whatever they have to do on a daily basis. So the idea of during off-peak hours, so not between morning rush hour or afternoon rush hour, during off-peak hours, vehicles would be allowed to park on these bike lanes. You would move the physical barriers, uh, cars, uh, SUVs, uh, whatever would park in these in these lanes. On the surface, it kind of makes sense, but when you really dig down and think about it, it would only lead to a variety of problems. What if now you can park in a bike lane, and now you're forcing a cyclist to, uh, you know, encounter a vehicle in this bike lane? Now, as to swerve into traffic, it just there seems to be too many what ifs or red flags, at least for me, and I'm I'm sure you're of the same mind. Well, not only that, but if you start putting out the message that it's okay to park in bike lanes. I mean, it's it's an endemic problem we have in the city that people park in bike lanes all the time, all over the city. And I'm sure each individual person thinks, oh, you know what, I'm just stopping for 30 seconds or a minute to run in and grab something or drop something off. It's not that big of a deal, but it's like litter. You know, if I drop one candy bar on the ground, I think, eh, it's not that big of a deal. But if everybody thinks that way, then suddenly we're up to our waste and garbage. Uh, Locking bike lanes is the same kind of idea. When you're, I mean, I, I ride bike pretty regularly around the city, and I can't think of a single trip I've been on recently where I haven't encountered at least one car blocking some portion of the bike lane. So if enough people are doing just one little thing enough times, it makes the entire network unusable. So it, it defeats the purpose. And not only that, uh, I mean, we, we've seen this with, you know, you can't turn left on certain uh, times and certain days, or you can't park on a certain side of the street uh, at a certain time of the month. You know, people will, uh, you know, push the rules or push those boundaries uh, to their benefit, i.e., uh, all right, it's it's 8.58, I'm just going to run into this convenience store or go to the federal building downtown, I'll just park on this Bay Street bike lane, I'll be in and out in a couple minutes. Lo and behold, it's, you know, quarter after nine, uh, and uh, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're blocking bike lanes that are being used by people who are trying to get to work. Well, sure. And I mean, it's not like there's a shortage of parking in the area. Literally one block from where we're talking about, there is a municipal-owned parking lot that is literally empty. And when I say empty, I don't mean half full. I mean, you walk by there on a weekday, and there's not a 
single car parked in there. So I have a hard time believing that parking is such a crisis in this neighborhood that we have to remove dedicated cycling infrastructure to allow for it. And, and even if it was, I mean, even if parking was an issue, and I know some, you know, sometimes it's not easy to find a parking spot, but why doesn't the city, and this is the cynic in me, why doesn't the city just create more parking spaces, whether it's metered parking, uh, whether it's free parking? I mean, there are options out there. Oh, sure. I mean, if, if anything, you know, and the city itself has um, has audited its own parking supply, and we have an oversupply of parking. We've had an oversupply of parking for decades. You know, it's it's a problem when you can park for an entire month, let's say downtown, for less than the cost of a monthly bus pass. You know, we're supposed to be encouraging people to use more transit, encouraging people to, you know, to walk more, to cycle more, to use more active and healthy and environmentally sustainable ways of getting around. And yet the cheap, we, we make it so that the cheapest way to get around is still driving. And so people have a sense of entitlement and an assumption that I should be able to drive anywhere I want and I should be able to park for free right in front of where I'm getting out. And that's not a realistic assumption in a city. It, it shouldn't be a realistic assumption anywhere. And we certainly shouldn't be making our street more dangerous for its most vulnerable users in order to, to feel that illusion. Last question for you. Uh, the vote was 9-1 to one at Public Works Committee. It's uh, up for ratification uh, on April 10th, next Wednesday, at uh, City Council. How do you see this playing out? Well, I mean, I hope that people in the community who are concerned about what I consider to be a waste of time and effort will speak up and say to their councillor, look, let's stop wasting time on this. You know, it's, you know, I agree with you. I do think it's a good idea to study things. I think it's a good idea not to kind of write things off automatically. But we don't have to study this. We've already done it. We already know what the research tells us. Staff are busy. They have a lot to do. There's not enough time for them to do it already. And, uh, you know, they need to, we need to, to, prioritize and focus our efforts on on areas where we're actually going to make a difference and not send our staff off wasting time on reports that are not going to tell us anything we don't already know. Ryan, I appreciate your time today, and um, I'm sure you'll be at the meeting next week. Uh, Good luck. Thanks a lot. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Nova Scotia is looking to become the first jurisdiction in North America to adopt presumed consent around organ donation under proposed legislation. It's called the Human Organ and Tissue Donation Act, and all people in the province would be considered organ donors unless they opt out. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Stephen Bede, Medical Director of the province's Legacy of Life and Critical Care Organ Donation Program, and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Dr. Bede, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for taking uh, some time to uh, discuss this very important uh, issue. How did the province uh, come to this option? Well, we've always been trying to address the needs of patients with end organ failure by supporting donation and transplantation in any way we could. And so we supported the evolution of a critical care-based donation program that involved focused education. And that was the base that we started with. But we knew to really maximize the opportunity to donate, we needed to look at all the opportunities that might exist And presumed consent is something that has been successful in some parts of the world. And interestingly, the premier had a specific interest in supporting donation. And as we were thinking about this as an option, he made it quite clear that he'd like to make this a priority. So we began conversations, serious conversations about this some months ago. And the legislation was was brought forward yesterday yesterday. 
So it's been a conversation over many years, but fairly specifically in the last six months or so. You mentioned that this has been successful in other places. How has that success been measured? Well, the the metric that people always default to, and it's not a perfect one, but it's the number of organ donors per million population. It's sort of a number that uh, all countries report. And it's not a perfect metric of system performance, but it's a pretty important one to focus on. And so if you look at the number of donors per million, in Ontario, for example, you're in the probably roughly 25 donor per million territory, give or take a little. If we want to bring all of the opportunities to donate forward, we're hoping presumed consent would increase numbers by roughly 30%. So in Nova Scotia, we're hoping that our donor rate, which is in the low 20s, might be 30% higher. Maybe we're going to get into the high 20s with this kind of an initiative. Other countries that have brought this legislation in combination with system change on board have had that kind of a bump, and we're hoping we will as well. Now, we should mention that those under the age of 19 and people without decision-making capacity would be exempt for this, and that's vitally important to have, right? It is, and we've also made it, and we need to make it crystal clear that anybody who has their own reason for not wanting this to happen can register that concern. There will be an there will be an opportunity to register your opinion that you don't want this to occur. So we're we hear a little bit from some people about how they don't want government to control what happens to their body, and. That is a minority opinion, but it's certainly an important one to acknowledge. And so if people feel that way, we completely respect that, and we're going to develop a tool that will enable those people to indicate that they do not want this to happen. And even when we go with presumed consent, we will be approaching the family to confirm that there is, is no reason to, to alter our plans. So, number one, I'm in favor of this. Uh, I love the fact that uh, you don't have to opt in. You're already in the club, so to speak. And I know this isn't law right now, but obviously this is you know, a, a, a piece of legislation that you hope to pass. Um, and I understand where you're uh, coming from in terms of the suggestion of, hey, the state doesn't own my body. For me, as long as I'm alive, yes, I'm the owner of my body. But once I leave this earth, so to speak, um, you know, I, I'd rather see my organs, my tissues go to someone who needs it so they can continue on with their life or improve their life. In saying all that, can you see a legal challenge being launched uh, under the proviso of, you know, the state, stay away from my body. This is, you know, I, I own it, not you. I i am not a lawyer, but I absolutely do not believe that that would be a credible uh, a credible. Uh, concern to bring forward if we develop a mechanism that allows individuals to express their concern and 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 opt out of this system, if you will. If we didn't build that kind of a a process, in there may or may not be a successful challenge. But we're telling people who might be concerned about that that we will respect their opinion, and this is the tool you can use to tell us that you don't want that. And 
So we are going to have that in place, and I think that that opportunity to, to opt out, if you will, as an integral part of our system change would prevent a challenge. Now, that would be my voice as a clinician at the bedside, not as a lawyer, but uh, we're comfortable, I think, going forward with this. And we know that the majority of people want this. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Stephen Bede, Medical Director of uh, Nova Scotia's Legacy of Life and Critical Care Organ Donation Program. We're talking about Nova Scotia looking to become the first jurisdiction on the continent to adopt presumed consent around organ donation. So you or an individual would be uh, would have to opt out in order to not be on the list. Uh, talk about the public uh, education program or the or the public input program that you are going to be launching and uh and when's the drop-dead date in terms of making this into law, or at least the hope of making this into law? Well, we we had serious conversations with the Premier's office about this and said that if, if all it is is a law, then it's a piece of paper and it won't work. So we made the point that to be successful, we need this legislation, but we need to have a public education campaign so the community knows what we're talking about. We need to get the healthcare community educated and informed. We need to get our expert personnel into a, a system that enables them to support the people across the province. We need a database IT solution to some of our challenges. And all of that is roughly a 12 to 18 month body of work. So we're assuming that this is proclaimed and the law of the land, if you will, in in roughly a year, perhaps 18 months. But we want to get this groundwork done before it becomes law, and we'll be listening to the people in the province to help frame how we specifically address concerns that get raised. We've certainly progressed as a society in terms of, well, many things. Um, In terms of organ donation, it seems to still be old world or... Uh, or, or traditional thinking in terms of uh, d- don't touch my body. I mean, it, it belongs to me. How do you how do you change that that kind of mindset? And is it changeable? Well, I think for the majority of of the Canadian population, uh, the idea that they might be able to help somebody else after they die by donating is is embraced. All the major faiths support either that decision or the right of the individual to make that decision. So I think the community at large understand that this is a good thing. Autonomy for an individual is very important, but the idea that this kind of gift could help other people after death is is broadly, if not universally, it is broadly supported. The uh, progress we've made in increasing donation rates in this country has been impressive, but we still fall way behind where we'd like to be. So, so why is that? Why is that stumbling do. block still there? I mean, what is it? Just the fact that people don't want to go online and register or or throw something in the mail? Well, I, very few people reflect on their own mortality. Hmm. That's just a fact. Nobody really, uh, I think, spends a lot of time contemplating these rare but catastrophic problems. And so it may or may not come around the, the dinner table. The healthcare community at large, in general, has not been well educated on this because until 
until the last, I don't know, five or ten years or, or something like that, donation and transplantation were not issues addressed in nursing or medical school or residency training very often. So we have a whole community of healthcare personnel who know something of the topic, but they certainly wouldn't have a lot of expertise. These are rare events. They're always very, very stressful, but they're actually rare events. In Nova Scotia, you know, we would have 21 donors in the entire province over the course of the entire year. So as important as it is, the community at large doesn't doesn't deal with this very often, and it's always a very, very stressful situation because, of course, somebody died. So there's a whole bunch of factors for why this is a challenge. But some of the cultural issues are also contributors, and that that would be um, things like like presumed consent versus not consent, autonomy of the individual. Those things play a part. And, uh, and the system, I think, appropriately supported, will enable the population at large to get better informed. And I think they'll get behind this in general. And for those that don't, we'll have a mechanism to express their opinion and, and we'll respect it. If this new presumed consent scenario comes to be in Nova Scotia, will the measure of success be if one life is saved, if one life is improved, or if other provinces also follow suit, is that going to be a, a huge check mark for you guys? I think we'd love to see this discussed nationally, and I know those kind of conversations may very well happen. I'm sure the rest of the donation community in Canada will be watching how things unfold in Nova Scotia. And if there's an opportunity to make this the new norm in Canada, done done well, obviously, but if this can become the new norm, then I think that would be great. We'd like to be on the front edge of that, and we'd like to be part of a system that's got more donors than we do right now. That would be a good thing. Dr. Bede, thanks for joining us today. Uh, good luck with this. As I said, I'm very much in favor of it, and hopefully there aren't too many stumbling blocks along the way. Um, and who knows, maybe we'll talk to you sometime down the road on a, a successful program that you've uh, launched in the province. Sure, happy to do it. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.